Welcome back to Chit Talk, where we talk about really good shit. My name is Annika. And my name is Rithu. Follow us on our socials, here to Chit Talk and Instagram for sneak previews, audio clips, and more. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Chit Talk. Today's guest is Danielle Bezalo, uh, creator, producer, and host of Sex Ed with DB, a feminist podcast bringing you all the sex ed you never got through unique, entertaining storytelling. Along with balancing her sex ed podcast, Danielle has completed her master's in public health with a focus on sexuality, sexual, and reproductive health from Columbia University. We're going to give you the basics of sex ed, bust some myths, and talk about the future of sex, education, and information. We're so, so excited to have you on the show, Danielle. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so stoked to be here. Well, tell us your story in your own words. What is your background? Like, What first piqued your interest in learning about sexuality and reproductive health? Yeah, that is a great question. So my mom is an OBGYN, and so that was very much the start, I would say, of my interest in sexual health. I feel like very much it would be like, you know, placenta talk at the dining room table, like, oh, you know, this person is 10 centimeters dilated, you know, this person is Mm -hmm. getting a C-section, like lots of like OBGYN doctor talk. And just from a very young age, I just really saw how passionate my mom was about women's health and reproductive health issues and sexuality. And when I was, you know, 13, when I was in seventh grade and uh, got my period, I, you know, started using pads and just like many normal period havers when they're in sixth, seventh, eighth grade, you start with pads, but I was, you know, ready to graduate to tampons. And I was like, Mm -hmm. you know what, mom, I really need your help. Like, I don't know what to do. And she was very much helping me outside of the bathroom door. And, you know, we were going back and forth for a while. And I was like, Hey, just, just come on in here, just come on in and, uh, you know, kneel below my vulva and vagina and just (laughs) stick your hand up there. And she just did it. You know, she was just like, let me, let me just do it. And she just like, kind of, you know, and just got the tampon right up there. And from then on, I was kind of like, oh, okay, this like seems like it's like secretive and like funny, but like, Mm. I think it's really fun and should be normal. So I feel like that is a very big memory. But in terms of the big aha moment of like when I really knew that I wanted sexual and reproductive health to be like my career um, was when I was 21 years old and I had just graduated from UC Berkeley for my undergrad and I went to Israel for a year and taught English. And my teaching cohort there, we went on a field trip to this really religious community in Jerusalem. And the main rabbi there was kind of like showing us around. He was like, here is my synagogue. Here are my traditions. This is what we eat. This is like how we pray. This is like, you know, X, Y, and Z. And he kind of like offhandedly, it was like, oh yeah. And I have like six daughters. And when all of them, you know, reach age 17 or 18, we're going to marry them off by the matchmaker and they won't learn about sex until their wedding night. Any other questions? And I was like, what? Yeah, super up, obviously. And I was like the only person in this room of like 30 or 40 people who like 
slowly kind of like raised my hand. It was like, um, and I just had so much going on inside me. I mean, you know, a 21 year old kid, basically just like knowing deep in my heart, how wrong what he was saying was. And I think out loud, I probably managed to say like, what if they don't want to be moms or like, what about consent or something to to that effect? And he kind of like brushed me off with his hand and he was like, well, that's just how it goes. And so that was really my aha moment of like, oh, no, 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 I, I don't like that at all. And if I can do anything about it, um, I will become a sex educator and or I will learn more about these issues and figure out how to essentially like what started it was figuring out, oh, how can I like help women? Like, how can I help young people, young women? And then since then, it's kind of evolved into this whole different thing. But that was my real aha moment. That's very inspiring. That's crazy. I wouldn't even know what to do in that situation if I were no. you. Like I would have just very intense. <laughs> I'd yeah. be flabbergasted. I wouldn't know what to say. Mm-hmm. Like, but, but like I, guess, I, I remember getting really hot and just like nervous, you know. Mm-hmm. And Danielle, like I totally understand being in that that space because my my family background, it like my mom's side of the family is Muslim, so mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of my younger cousins are like getting married at younger ages and like I don't really know like it's part of the custom so like obviously they're gonna go ahead and do that because they live there that's their own thing but like I do wonder whether or not they have these conversations about sexual health or anything for that matter totally or any tools or resources or specifically with like Orthodox Jewish communities, they're very, depending on how religious they are, they're extremely Mm -hmm. removed from society. Like these young girls don't even have access to the internet or like access to smartphones. So like it really does keep them super isolated and really Mm -hmm. just continues to push the agenda of like family first, religion first, Torah first. And it's just, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's a mutually or it's exclusive rather to Mm -hmm. the Jewish community. I think, you know, Christianity, Muslims, you can find in religions all across the world, um, people and institutions who oppress people and Mm -hmm. don't allow for them to have the tools and education and resources for them to live happy, healthy lives. Absolutely. And that's so interesting that you should say that as well, because even I found in my high school when I grew up in Singapore, that there were a lot of times where we were trying to have classes about life skills where we would be taught sex ed. And so I think that many of the adults were very concerned, especially if there were families, you know, who were of Muslim or of Catholic um, religion they would be very, very opposed to this. And they would often take their children out of these classes. And I was like, wouldn't that in turn do more harm than just in some ways? Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, you're not really educating them to, to understand these different, these different things about sex and and reproduction and and such. And it's just, I feel that that would, might actually do more harm than good, really. Totally. Absolutely. So that, that just, I mean, that's a great start, but I, how did the podcast come about? Like, how did you start it? Who did you do it with? Was it you all on your own? Like, how did that start? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I like, I got home from Israel in 2016 and then I started like a real person job. Like I was working in Israel, but I wasn't like getting paid. It was more of like, oh, you get free rent and like, we'll show you the sites around Israel. It's like, okay, (laughs) whatever. And uh, then I came back to the Bay Area in California and I started working at this nonprofit called Real Options for City Kids in San Francisco. 
and it was like an after school program. And I was a program coordinator there for two years. But during my second year, I was able to take this really awesome professional development course all about like a podcasting boot camp. Oh. And it was like eight hours of this session that taught you everything that you needed to know around how to start a podcast. So like, what equipment do you need? How do you come up with your mission? Like, who do you need in your corner in terms of like a graphic designer, a social media person? Mm -hmm. um, do you need a sound editor? Can you learn these skills yourself? Like, what about your jingle? Like all of these things that kind of like made up like, oh, this is how you start a podcast. And I'm really lucky that my old job like paid for that for me because I don't think I would have paid like whatever, 300 bucks out of my own pocket to take this podcasting boot class. But I was really lucky that I was able to find it and did it. And I think from then on, I just kind of like, you had to think of an example of like, what would you want your podcast to be about in this, mm -hmm. you know, in this boot camp? And in the moment I was like, oh, sex ed with DB, like that's what it is. And I, just from there, there was just like no turning back. There was no second guessing. And so once I took that boot camp class in like the summer of 2017, I, when, when Facebook was like still like in, I feel like Facebook is, <laughs> is completely lost for all, me and my Archaic friends, but it's, it is for, it is for our parents and grandparents. Now we have passed yeah, it yeah, over. Totally. <laughs> um, but at the time I like posted a status on Facebook and was like, Hey, everyone I know, I have this idea about this sex ed podcast. I don't really know where to start, but like whoever wants to be involved or like is interested in contributing in any way, like just let me know, comment on this thing. Mm -hmm. And it, overnight it got like hundred comments, like 200 likes, like people wow. were sharing it. It just like kind of like blew up in my like small corner of the world. And pretty much immediately I recruited like 10 volunteers to like help wow. me start the first season of the podcast. And that included mostly like sound editors and people to like kind of help with each episode, like being there in person to record, but also editing after there was like a marketing person, there was like somebody to help me with the content. And so that kind of was what started it. And we like fundraised like 800 bucks on GoFundMe for our equipment and all these things that I didn't really realize, you know, until fast forward, I'm in season five, like almost finished wow. season five now. And, um, you know, we didn't have to spend $800 on equipment. Like this shit costs like 150. It's like, fine. Don't worry about it. Like, it'll be fine. And so I feel like I've learned, yeah, I've learned a ton. And so that was really though, like how it got going. And mm -hmm. it really has like blossomed over the last, like almost four years now. Wow. That's incredible. We need that. Like, it's just we us really two do. doing like the editing, the social media, you, just like hustling you know, hard. You gotta <laughs> hustle you think that this would be like really expensive. It was only like 60 bucks. It was super um, cheap. And it looks per, very per cool. Yeah. 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 It looks very professional. So oh, you're doing you. something right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so wait, so how many people are actually working on the podcast right now? Yeah. So to your point of kind of like, oh, we need to do that. Like we're, we're being really scrappy and hustling. Like over the past five seasons, we've had, you know, from season one, 10 people, season two, we had like six people season three and four, we had like five people. And then for season five, it was just me and my co-producer. And we hired mm -hmm. an amazing social media intern who was our, like, who's been in season five, like who was there for the summer. And then she got a full-time job. She was like, so incredible. And I'm so happy that we, we hired her. Her name is Leslie Lopez. And my co-producer's name is Catherine Cohen. And, um, Pretty much I have found that I, I've adored all of my team members 
throughout the seasons. But I do find that like once we got it going, like we can make the ship run with mm-hmm. less people because we've like set up these things and know how to do it. And we've just been right. doing it for so long, especially me and my co-producer together that we like really are such a good team. And so, yeah, when I put Sex Ed with DB on my resume and I'm looking for full-time jobs or I'm in transition from one job to another, people are like, oh, like this podcast, it seems like you do this full-time. I'm like, no, I definitely don't do it full-time, <laughs> but I'm glad that I tricked you. Um, but I'm sure yeah. we get that too, Annika. Yeah, I need to start putting this on my resume now. Oh, you definitely do. Put that <laughs> yeah. on there, slap that on your LinkedIn. We'll do, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, I would say that we are kind of happily running with like two and a half people right now. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's awesome. And um, one of the things that I mentioned earlier was that you're very focused on like it being a feminist podcast. Um, what are some of the things that are a part of your mission aside from that? Yeah. So as you mentioned in the beginning, I'll just give folks a little refresher. We're a feminist podcast bringing you all the sex ed you never got through unique and entertaining storytelling, featuring and centering LGBTQ folks and by POC. And The goal really there is just to show that in the sex ed field, myself included, it is predominantly white women. And so to really create and save space for folks and stories who often don't get the opportunity to have that platform feels very critical to our mission, as well as what we bring in, not only for guests, but for topics and really like who we center in terms of like reposting other people's content, the type of content that we decide to post on our social media. I think it's just cool to have that lens. Like I said, just because minority communities are not uplifted as much as Mm -hmm. white folks, especially in the sexual and reproductive health field. Definitely. And then what are your, some, what are some of your aspirations for the upcoming years for your podcast? Like, what do you hope to achieve by sharing your knowledge with the world? Um, I mean, I really hope that we let people like fully be themselves in like every part of who they are. (laughs) Like, I, Mm -hmm. it sounds like kind of cheesy, but I really mean that. Like, just like everything that we aim to do is to like celebrate people, to celebrate pleasure, to celebrate identity, to really make people feel like happy and healthy in their bodies and to let them know that like, hey, you're normal or hey, like your pleasure or your identity matters or like all of these things just to really like affirm people. That's really baseline, like what we really hope that people feel like deep down when they engage with our content. In terms of personal goals, something that's really exciting that I actually haven't announced like quite yet, but I am writing a book um, Ooh, that's going to be wow. like a, a sex ed guidebook. And that like, only came about because of my podcast. Like someone reached out to me and like, it's in the works. And so more on that, stay tuned. But you know, I really hope that, thank you. I really hope that whatever that book turns out to be, um, will really like guide people in again, them feeling like happy and normal and celebrated and healthy. That's so awesome. Annika, you actually don't know this. So um, my my mom, she's a nurse. um, So she's been in the medical field all this time. But I actually learned about sex ed through a guidebook. So like I, she basically, (laughs) she basically gave me like, or I found a sex ed book and I was like reading it. This was 
uh, like as we started learning about sex ed in school. And then I was like, mom, can I just ask you questions if I have any? And she's like, yeah, sounds good. So I read a book and that's how I learned about sex ed. So to know that you're going to create something like that, content like that for Mm -hmm. young people, like I'm sure so many people that are like either nervous or embarrassed to ask about those kinds of questions to their parents will have a really thorough understanding of every aspect of sexual health. Totally. Yeah. I, I like really wish I had that as a resource when I was younger. Cause all we had was just about like maybe 10 classes of life skills and sex ed and that was it. So, mm-hmm. and that's, yeah. and that's more than, than some, and even most depending on like where you're looking in the U S and where you're looking around exactly. the world. But yeah, that's, that's awesome that you learn from a, a guidebook. That's yeah. incredible. I didn't know that. <laughs> See, I told you, you didn't know that about me. <laughs> So with that being said, let's actually talk about sex. So what are some common misconceptions about sex that you often hear from young people? Unfortunately, so, so (laughs) many, Um, like even like really simple stuff that you wouldn't really expect. So like we get a ton of comments on our Instagram and DMs and so many people just saying things like, oh, like I didn't even know how many holes were down there. Like I didn't realize that I had like- a urethra, a vagina, and an anus. Like like people <laughs> who are vulva owners like don't realize things like that. Mm. Um, a lot of people don't know like how pregnancy happens and how to prevent it or that you can get pregnant on your period or how birth control works or things like that. Um, people don't know like that masturbation is healthy or they don't really understand like what's an unhealthy amount of masturbation. And there's just, there's just, so much shame also, I want to say that is tied with these misconceptions, like, especially when kids are getting abstinence only or in religious schools, you know, like they're taught these super harmful ideas about sex and, uh, and like what their worth is. And a lot of them really struggle with it when really all they want to do is, like I said before, just be themselves or just love their partner, just, you know, have sex with their partner or be you know, part of the LGBTQ community, like loud and proud and be who they are. Like those are a lot of the misconceptions that are really tied with shame or like, oh, Mm -hmm. like, and some of them aren't misconceptions because if they uh, belong to a school or are a part of a family that really shames them, then they don't have the incentive or don't feel comfortable or don't Mm -hmm. feel like they belong and they don't feel like they can be their true selves. So I think like there's some there's some parts of it that's kind of just like, oh, this is like misinformation. That's why there are these misconceptions. And then there's like a part of it that's like, oh, you have been convinced that this is really shameful and that no mm-hmm. one is going to accept you. And again, in some cases that is true and that's extremely sad and super f***ed up. But I think that is like two different categories of misconceptions, I would say. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And like one of the things that's actually, you know what, we might as well do it now. We should just do it. Yeah. Yes. So Annika and I wanted to do a round of Mythbusters and we're going to call it Mythbusters with DB. Love Um, it. (laughs) And so uh, one of the things you already addressed, which is you can't get pregnant or you can get pregnant if you're having sex on your period. Right. So 
we have a couple of other ones and mm. we're hoping you'll do us the honor of answering them. I hope um, I get all these right. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So um, the first one, so you mentioned you can't get pregnant or you can get pregnant if you're having sex on your period, if it's your first time. You can definitely get pregnant <laughs> if it's your first time. Um, I don't know where the heck that myth came from, but you absolutely can get pregnant, especially if you are someone with a vulva and you're having sex with someone with a penis, you can get pregnant the first time you have sex. Yes. How about if you pull out? Yeah. So the thing about pulling out is that I feel like pulling out is a method, but it is not an effective method. So I want to be really clear, especially with young people about that, because I feel like when I was young, I received the information like pulling out doesn't work. And the thing is, is it doesn't, it's not an effective method, but it's a method and it's better than nothing. So when you are having sex with someone with a penis, if you have a vulva, for example, and you don't have a condom, and you're saying, I'm going to have sex anyway, you should probably have the person with the penis pull out to be mm -hmm. safe. Um, but it is not effective. And I think I need to check on this, but I'm pretty sure the pullout method only works about 75% of the time. Mm, so that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So if you look at a group of 100 people who have straight sex, 25 out of those 100 people will get pregnant. Wow. So wow. that that's that, a pretty huge number. You guys you don't yeah, want to be that pudding. one to 25 if you're not trying to get pregnant. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Um, now, what about if you're in certain positions, would that come into play at all with you getting pregnant or? Well, unless you're having anal sex, um, <laughs> no, um, I would say as long as the person with the penis is physically able to ejaculate inside of the person with the vagina, then the position that they have intercourse in will not uh, prevent the person with the penis from ejaculating or will not prevent the person with the uterus from potentially getting pregnant. There's one, one last one when it comes to getting pregnant. Great. What about if you douche after having sex? The thing about douching is I don't get why people do that. <laughs> I mean, I don't understand it. I don't, I think that it's something that the like vagina industry, industrial complex of capitalism mm -hmm. came up with to like sell people with vaginas products. But the thing about <laughs> douching is that it you shouldn't do it. I don't, I don't know. I think like, it, I don't, I don't know certainly if there are like cultural practices with douching that I'm not sure. So definitely don't want to be offensive to people's douching practices. However, douching will not affect you getting pregnant if a person with a penis has ejaculated inside of you. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I want to say about douching is often there are these douching products that are sold with really harmful like scents and chemicals mm -hmm. that really throw off the pH balance of the vagina. And if you want to clean the vagina, all you need to do is use like water and you can use soap on the outside of the vulva, but you really shouldn't be using anything like that inside of the vagina. So I want to, I want to say it once and for all, I don't think douching, <laughs> um, is, is helpful and it definitely won't prevent pregnancy. Noted. <laughs> I have a question here. 
popping the cherry is this a real thing when you having vaginal intercourse for the first time what is it and is it real oh okay so popping your cherry is like you know it's slang pretty much for like breaking the hymen and so some people's hymen does get broken uh when having intercourse with a penis or when a finger is there or when a toy is there or some people like that happens to some people when they're playing sports when they're young or if they're mm -hmm. riding a horse or things like that um in terms of if it's a real thing i mean i think they're i think it is tied with kind of this like virginal <laughs> complex it has a lot of like mm -hmm. societal and cultural yeah. like ties but I, I will say that I'm not a doctor. This is probably a better question for my mom, honestly. <laughs> but I do think it it is a real thing in the sense that there are some folks who have their hymen intact when they have intercourse for the first time and it can um, break essentially and cause like slight bleeding. That is that is something that can happen to, to people. That definitely clears things up. Um, I actually didn't know. I didn't know that you could you could break your hymen horseback riding. That's crazy. I, I did know that. I think like gymnastics and like other sorts of dance as well. If you like do mm -hmm. splits or if you like trying to stretch yourself, then you could possibly like break your hymen in that case too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but again, like it is kind of the tied to this like, oh, like popping your cherry. You're like mm -hmm. pure if your hymen is intact. It has a lot of like overtones of like definitely religiosity and just very much like <laughs> oh if you your hymen is broken then you're like not as pure and you're not virginal and you're dirty you're you know yeah. yeah yeah there's just like all this yeah. bullshit tied with it so I think it's I think it's one of those things that kids say but I like to make it really clear if I'm ever in a sex ed class and I'm teaching young people and they say something like that I try mm -hmm. to be like oh let's be really clear with like what anatomy are we talking about like what yeah. is problematic about that like what actually is going on so we can be all on like the same page with what is happening here definitely something I actually noticed that you do in our conversation is that you're like very explicit in describing like human anatomy when you're talking like you'll be very distinguishing about what's what and really emphasize that and I mm -hmm. really appreciate that I think that's so helpful thank you I think it's also just practice like if you're an educator it's good practice to talk in a sense that is is very gender inclusive and I think mm -hmm. that when you're talking about these kind of vague sex conversations but that everyone kind of knows what they mean typically we ask questions in a way that only allows for the framework of like a straight couple or straight sex pretty much with a cis woman and a cis man and I just think it's really important to like open that up like speaking of you know being inclusive inclusive of the LGBTQ community and just really understanding that sex is for everybody and mm -hmm. everyone has well not everyone most people have sex in whatever way feels good for them and I think that that includes being really explicit with the kind of language and the acts that we're discussing. Another note here, masturbating while you're in a relationship means you're not sexually stimulated by your partner. I know the answer to this one. <laughs> <laughs> and the answer 
is no, that's not true. Um, so what I will say is that we do get a lot of messages like this of like, oh, I'm in a relationship, like my girlfriend shouldn't be masturbating. Like if she was sexually satisfied, then like, mm -hmm. why would she have the need to masturbate? And the reality is, is like masturbation is a perfectly normal, healthy part of sex with yourself, with a partner or without a partner. So if you're single, it's great if you masturbate. If you're in a relationship and the partner of the person who is seeing their partner masturbate should not feel jealous, should not be angry, should be encouraging them to have a safe and healthy and happy sexual health experience masturbating by themselves because that is part of a healthy sex life. Totally. Jumping off of that, I also read one that said that porn causes erectile dysfunction. Is that true? No, it's not. That's not true. That's another way <laughs> That's for wild. people to shame people about porn. I mean, I think like there is something to be said for how porn really desensitizes people to violence, for lack of a better word, and um, unrealistic, basically porn in many cases is unrealistic expectations of sex and pleasure. And that's not true in all cases. There is definitely some porn that is ethical porn and porn that, you know, features queer folks and makes it very clear that they're all about consent and they're inclusive. And I think also something to say about what happens in porn behind the scenes is there is always consent and the scene partners do always talk about what is going to happen in the scene and they sign forms and they discuss what their limits are and what they're into. And that is never shot. Mm. Uh, that's never on the yeah. screen. You know, yeah. we that's don't see those behind people. Exactly. Yeah. They don't want to <laughs> see paperwork, put the paperwork away. Um, <laughs> but all that is to say, like porn definitely does not cause erectile dysfunction. <laughs> um, and it's a perfectly normal way for people to be sexually stimulated. And I will say though, that if, you know, there are always things that are quote unquote, quote unquote, normal or common that can become issues for people. So can you become addicted to porn? Sure. You can become addicted to porn. Like can porn become something that takes over your, you know, daily routine. And then maybe it's important for you to like seek help or talk to someone about that? Sure. I mean, that can happen with anything, um, but definitely important to underline the fact that porn and masturbating will not cause you to not be able to enjoy sex or have, you know, sexual dysfunction problems. Just to tag along to what you said previously about porn having this very artificial way of showing sex is bigger really better <laughs> i love these questions um i would say that that is a huge misconception i think that first of all there are always toys that can provide exactly the kind of stimulation that folks are looking for if they're interested in a big dildo that vibrates that also like massages your clit at the same time. Like they have that, like some store has that for you and like, you're going to be just fine. But I think everyone's different. I think there are some people, again, if we're talking about straight relationships with a cis man and a cis woman, there are many cis women out there who really prefer outer course, who really prefer kissing and massage and nipple play and 
clitoris play and maybe intercourse, but maybe the depth of penetration isn't what's important to them. Maybe it's the way in which they grind. Maybe it's the, you know, the, the speed. There are a lot of things that Mm -hmm. can allow for a pleasurable sexual intercourse experience in a straight couple. And I would say that, you know, perpetuating this idea that like, oh, bigger is better. Like we want guys with big penises uh, is definitely harmful to to cis men and to people with penises um, just because I don't think that that is, I think that that's another way to body shame people. So anytime that we're doing that, we want to make sure we like think about that and figure out like what's the better way to teach people to love their bodies and to respect like themselves and to like really champion who they are and whatever whatever they were born with or whatever they, whoever they are, whoever they choose to be in the world. I think that I, I think that a lot of people, a lot of cis men or men with penises in general, I think that it's a, it's an assertion of masculinity oftentimes that they feel like they need to prove something or establish Mm -hmm. their masculinity to others, not even just to themselves. Right. Maybe toxic masculinity has a part in that. Right. Definitely. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think it's further perpetuated in porn, in media, in movies and TV shows, like in, yeah, toxic masculinity, like schoolboy culture. I think it's like, until people change the norms in society and interpersonal norms, then they're going to stay exactly as they are. You made a very interesting point about body shaming. And I think that's so interesting because I've never really thought about it that way, but I think that's you know, completely true to the fact that guys can get insecure, but like seeing them, you know, seeing other people on porn and watching it and seeing other guys like with different sized penises, for instance, like it's just very, you know, everyone's unique and everyone has their own body type and their own like preference as well. Totally. Yeah. We get so many messages on our Instagram saying like, what's the best size like penis to have? Like, is my size Mm -hmm. okay? Like people who are embarrassed about like the size of their penis and it's not on accident, you know, like they've been taught from a young age that like, if they have a small penis, then they're like, not hot. They're not sexy. They're not worth it. They're not going to get a girlfriend, like whatever they've been taught. And so the more and more we can be like, no, dude, like you're just fine the way you are. Like you're perfect. You're doing great. (laughs) Like just keep it up. Um, I think the better that we'll all be. And could you have any other Mythbusters? No, I was just going to like write off what she was going to say, like, keep it up quite literally, but you know, oh, um, yeah. as well as get an erection. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I do have a quick question. So, or not a question, more like a myth, bu- myth buster. Um, you can get a UTI, a urinary tract infection. If you don't pee immediately after sex. That is true. You, I think this is the first true, what is this? The first true one or second true one or something <laughs> for a while. You guys yeah. are really hounding the false ones. Um, I would say that is true. And that is because when you have sex with a person or with a toy or the finger or what, or, you know, with a penis, whatever you're having sex with, um, you can get bacteria um, near and around your urethra And if you pee right after masturbating, right after intercourse, right after any type of sex, um, again, if you're a person with a vulva, then you can prevent a UTI. It doesn't, it's not foolproof. It doesn't happen every single time you pee after sex, but it can help for sure. 
that clears things up for a lot of people. I think the reason, <laughs> part of the reason, at least Annika and I wanted to ask a lot of the false ones was because a lot of people don't know them, right? That's true. That um, is very true. So might as well put out the false ones so that people actually know what they're getting themselves into. I love it. Yeah. That's great. I'm happy to answer them. Yeah, there's just so many different stereotypes and stigmas as well, and just so many different ideas that people have. So it's just, it's good to just like clear up these myth busters as well. So yeah. Totally. Jumping, jumping back to that, actually, Annika, where you were talking about addressing stigma or just Mm -hmm. talking about it in general what do you think uh daniel what do you think people could do to be more sex positive or like you know address and kind of work through that stigma that exists in and around sexual health like what can people do to put that out there yeah i mean it it sounds really simple but like people can just start talking about it i mean people can really just like start the conversation with your friends with your family with your peers with your teachers like in an appropriate setting of course can't just in the middle of math be like let's talk about dicks right now um unless your math teacher is into that uh but um yeah just like really start talking about it start, you know, promoting this type of content, really share with your friends, like new episodes and new um, documentaries, new YouTube series, like about sexual and reproductive health and like learn, learn from experts in the field, learn from people who are trying to teach young people and old that sex is something again, to be talked about and celebrated. And um, also I would say, when there are sex negative things happening around you, if they're slut shaming, if there are people who are promoting um, incorrect, uh, non-factual information, whether that be because they had an abstinence-only background or they mm-hmm. don't have the information themselves, like speak out, like really be the person who uh, who says, "Hey, that's a myth. Actually, no, masturbation is not unhealthy. It's actually very healthy and very common and normal. Like many people do that." Um, when you're on Instagram and you're seeing like trolls or haters on the pages that you really like, like comment really hurtful and harmful things towards queer people or towards fat people, like speak out, like say something about Mm -hmm. that because chances are the more that you defend people and like spread love and information and accurate facts, um, the more likely you will have been to like literally save someone's life and like make them feel like they belong or make them feel normal or give them that information and make them just have a more pleasurable sexual experience the next time they have sex with themselves or with a partner. Like really just like speak out, use your voice, look up information, learn from people who are in the field um, and, and take it from there. Yeah, I think that's a great segue to the future of reproductive education and health, just because like you mentioned before, there's just so much information out there. There's also a lot of misinformation on the internet as well. And I think it's really crucial for us and other people and our friends and family to be educated and to share this correct information to other people as well. Um, But what do you think that the North American educational system lacks in terms of sex education? I got a whole list for you. Are you ready? Oh, it sounds good. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> All right. The North American educational system is lacking in 
teaching about pleasure, the clitoris, masturbation, consent, healthy relationships, negotiation, polyamory, LGBTQ sex ed, the sexual orientation spectrum, reproductive justice, and the history of using Black people, people of color, and Indigenous folks in reproductive experiments, how to live and manage STIs and the importance of destigmatizing them, anal sex, lube in all caps, uh, <laughs> mental health, how birth control works, destigmatizing and managing periods, sex ed in the media, porn literacy, sex and disability, and so, so much more. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's a whole, that's a whole like, workload. And that's not that even everything. Missed. That's just like a little bit of like what we should be doing better, but yeah. those are definitely the, the main ones. Sorry, uh, sorry. I, I was just going to say, I think that just seems like there needs to be a revision in curriculum altogether and like a no full-blown over, overload of all of this information. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like the top three things I wish I learned when, when I was learning sex education back in high school were consent and communication and um, female hormonal contraceptives and like birth control, because I only started taking birth control when I came here in Vancouver and I wasn't educated enough on you know what the harmful aspects are what the benefits are as well and so I just wish I had this knowledge um at a younger age I really wish that for everybody for all of us I mean I think that the more and more that kids and young people are able to have access to that information like the better people we will have in the world like the the kinder more empathetic more like self-aware people will exist because that those are the skills and tools that you learn in sexual health education class. Annika, that actually reminds me of, Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember this. So Annika and I actually went to the same university and we were both in sororities as well. Um, So one of the things that they place a huge emphasis on is addressing like sexual assault and rape. And like, that's something that they focus a lot on educating people in our college about. And they have speakers come in and talk about consent and stuff. And like, I never once in my entire high school experience ever learned anything about consent um, or any of that. And I feel like so many people are along with me in that boat and they don't Mm -hmm. necessarily learn until we're in college and they attend that seminar, right? Yeah. Well, I'll have to sort of contradict that just a little bit, just because us girls and us girls in our sororities, we got the education. However, the guys, they had the option of learning that. And it wasn't like, like we had to set a time and, you know, it was dedicated time for us girls to like sit there and, you know, take attendance. And we had to sit there and like, listen to it, which was great education for us. But for the guys, it was an option for them to learn about it. And I feel like, you know, in Greek life, there is just so much stigma around sex as well. And there's also just no communication at all and no consent for many of times. And there's been people that, you know, Ruthu and I know that, have had um have fallen victims to sexual assault and to rape as well which is very unfortunate but i just wish that we had the same um knowledge Standard. and information exactly yeah totally yeah i mean i also was in a sorority in college and oh it was just rampant in the greek system mm-hmm. like there's so much sexual assault so much violence and yeah it just was perpetuated and like celebrated among like the fraternities and it was so problematic. And I feel like if I could go back or if I could like 
make change in that area, it would really be to like, not only educate like cis men around like the violence that they perpetuate, but to really take action to make sure that like the people who were harmed, like should not have felt that harm and should not have had those experiences. And it's unfortunately, since it's so systemic and since it's so rampant, it's really challenging to address in a short period of time while you're, while one person is on a college campus. But all that is to say there, there needs to be massive changes that happen in the Greek system, like potentially like to abolish it because it's just so, (laughs) it's so bad. It's like really horrific. That's like, it's such an institutional, um, it's ingrained in, in it's their a tragedy. Society. Yeah, it's Definitely, horrible. Yeah. And they're encouraging like, you know, misogyny and toxic right. masculinity as well, which is... Exactly. Yeah. So as an educator yourself, what do you think are some of the things that get in your way of doing your job? Like, what do you think get in the way of you providing good, well-informed sex ed to the public? Yeah, I have like a spicy one, which is just like religion, like as a concept. (laughs) Um, I think just like the whole thing. Now, I think religion can bring a lot of happiness and like community and sense of belonging to a lot of people. But I also think that extreme uh, versions of every religion can be extremely harmful, especially when it comes to sexual and reproductive health education. So I would say that tied with like abstinence only curriculum and that you know, domino effect of like shame and misinformation and, uh, you know, lack of education, like pretty much like how society is right now and how it's been built up, especially in the U.S. to really favor stressing abstinence only is extremely, makes it extremely challenging for us to be able to do our jobs in a way that feels uh, like it's not the, you know, climbing a thousand million foot mountain, just like, oh shit, like I have a long way to go. (laughs) Like that's kind of how it feels, Um, especially because of how much federal dollar, how many federal dollars have been pushed into abstinence Mm -hmm. only curriculum. So I would say those are the two things on my mind um, that really make it challenging for sex educators to do their job well. And what are some things that parents and family family members can do to bring up sex as a topic of discussion to their own children and sexual health? Yeah, so we interviewed this really awesome couple um, on my podcast, and their names are Caricia and Anthony, and they are the co-founders of this really cool organization called Bloom, B-L-O-O-M, and they have playbooks for young kids ages, I think it's like five to nine, they have three different playbooks for parents to specifically start these conversations around friendship, boundaries, safety, communication, um, anatomy with their children. So they created these playbooks and they um, fundraised a bunch of money to get them made. And now you can go on their website. I think it's bloomscience.org and check them out. Um, Another resource that I want to share is this really awesome free app um, that anyone can download if you have a smartphone called OKSO, O-K-A-Y-S-O, one word. And um, essentially it's this app where it's 
geared towards young people and teens, but anyone can download it and use it. And you can text any uh, question you have about identity, sexuality, relationships, birth control, whatever you have in kind of that realm, identity, whatever. Um, and you can text uh, in a group chat format to a bunch of experts who are in that field and they'll answer you um, with, you know, whatever information, education, resources that they have. And this can all happen anonymously. So you can create an account without tying it to your email, without, you know, making it really obvious. Like mm -hmm. if your parents check your phone, kind of like what that app is. So I highly recommend for parents who are listening or young people who know parents who have, you know, who have kids to recommend uh, Bloom and okay, so are fantastic resources. That's awesome. That's awesome. I don't know if we have like a Canadian equivalence or adjacent to that. Do you know, Rithu? I have no idea, but mm. all I know is that like, for, for me, at least I feel like a lot of family members or parents, like I've heard from my friends that they, they didn't really have the sex talk with their parents um, because there was like icky, uncomfortable feelings. Mm. Um, and I think that a lot of that, especially with that Bloom Science resource that you were referring to, I feel like starting at a young age is such a, such a crucial part of it. One of my friends, um, she has a, she has a baby who's, um, about two and, you know, she's about to have her second child and she, in one of her Facebook or one of her stories on Instagram, she was talking about how she would be very explicit in using the correct anatomy when discussing, um, like, you know, if um, her child was like touching a specific part of her body, like to make sure to address what the anatomy is and be like very explicit. And I feel like a lot of, a lot of parents and young parents can learn from that mm -hmm. because it just, it just really takes the shame out of it. Right. Definitely. Like you mentioned. Yeah. It normalizes it. Yeah. yeah. And like, I, similarly to you, I progressed from like, you know, using a pad in middle school to using a tampon in, in I think late high school to, you know, middle of university, but I didn't quite have my mom to educate me through that. And I feel like in some ways there is um, even a cultural barrier sometimes, especially with Asian cultures, like, you know, this whole topic could be a huge taboo topic to discuss and to, to have, um, you know, a discussion with your, your parents as well. So that could be like a hard topic to like, you know, really crack down with them. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll say this. I mean, my mom and I, my mom's been on my podcast every season for the past five seasons and it's been very <laughs> wow, fun to so like nice. get down with her. Yeah. It's been great. And I feel like it was in like the first or second season where I kind of like called her out for like unintentionally shaming me for masturbating as a kid. I think she just like, didn't really know, like, how to approach it, but she, yeah. So we, so all that is to say, like my mom is fantastic and I love her and I think she did so well, but parents who still like have a degree in, you know, medicine and have studied like gynecology and like obstetrics can still like unintentionally perpetuate shame just because of the way that our parents were raised, just because of the way that society is, the way that we shroud this information with you know this veil of embarrassment is really pervasive and can affect even parents with the best intentions yeah totally I mean like my my mom 
she because of the way she was raised as I mentioned like she was one of those people for sure like she felt so much embarrassment in like addressing she's literally delivered a baby and she's still, you know she's still like <laughs> she's still she sees it all the time she sees like she's she's seen vagina she's seen like she's I'm sure she's taken out um IUDs from people like so many things like that mm-hmm. right and so it just it's so funny to see like that disconnect with me but I think you're right in the fact that like just making it open and just being very direct about it um, is just the way to go. For sure. Yeah. Um, I think for the last like tidbit here, do you have any fun stories that you'd like to share with us with your career, thinking- with like your podcast, with anything? Yeah. I was thinking a lot about this question because I was like, fun stories like what (laughs) is fun about my life I don't know it's COVID everyone's just like miserable um but the the coolest thing I will say about this podcast and like the community that we've been able to grow from it are the amazing people who have like messaged us or me personally and just been like hey I just want to let you know like because I started listening to your podcast I like decided to like have a career in public health, or like I decided to like, go become a sex educator. And like that, I mean, since I'm an educator, and since like, connecting with students and with people and teaching is like, really my like heart, like really my passion. That just makes me so happy to be like, oh, shit, like the thing that we're making is having such an impact on people so much so that they are willing to like, shift their like life plans to like contribute to this cause of like sexual and reproductive health for everybody. And I think that that is so cool and has just really like touched my heart in so many ways. And so I don't think there's anything that could be more fun than that. Yeah. That must be so rewarding. That's awesome. Super rewarding. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Danielle. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, this is excellent. This is so much fun to just like chat with you about like sex and reproductive health. And, you know, we're just learning so much from having our guest speakers come on board to our show. So thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Anytime. I really, really appreciate what y'all are doing. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm very excited to um, to continue to follow your work and to really see how y'all grow as well. So thank you. Awesome. Um, Where can people find you? Shameless plug time. Yeah, shameless plug. Um, you can find us wherever you're on social media. So on Twitter, <laughs> we're on TikTok, follow us on TikTok. Um, we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, um, pretty much on Instagram and no, what one second, because it's like all different handles. On Instagram, <laughs> we are at sex ed with DB podcast. On Twitter and TikTok, we are at sex ed with DB. And on Facebook, we are at Ed with DB. And you can go to our website, www.sexedwithdb.com. You can listen to us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. And yeah, please uh, like and subscribe, guys. Like and subscribe. (laughs) And Annika, where can people find us? You can find us on our socials at Here to Chit Talk on Instagram for more fun clips and sneak previews. Or on our website, chittalkpodcast.com for other episodes, blog posts, features, and more. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much.